Welcome to the Optimal Body Podcast. I'm Doc Jen. And I'm Dr. Dom. And we are doctors of physical therapy, bringing you the body tips and physical therapy pearls of wisdom to help you begin to understand your body, relieve your pains and restrictions, and answer your questions. Along with expert guests, our goal of the Optimal Body Podcast is really to help you discover what optimal means within your own body. Let's dive in. One of the cool things you're going to hear about this interview is just how much you can support your metabolic health by some of these simple changes that we're going to talk about. But I think another thing that we have been experimenting with, we've, oh, yeah. we've done it a few times now, is NutriSense, which is a continuous glucose monitor. What, do you, what would you say is one of the favorite things you have learned from using NutriSense? Really how to change, one, my breakfast, which is actually something Dr. Lyon is going to talk about as well um, and why that's so important. And then it's really helped me to focus on (laughs) foods that really help fuel me and help me feel energized rather than crashing throughout the day or like reaching for needing something. Yeah. It's like one of those positive consequences of just being a little more aware of that blood glucose. And then you start to realize on the days that you don't have the spikes and the crashes, you don't have as much of the cravings. Exactly. And one of the amazing benefits of NutriSense is that you have dietitian help. Yeah. And especially with our code. That's my favorite part. Yeah. If you go down to the link in the show notes, which is NutriSense.io backslash optimal body and use code optimal body, all one word, you get $30 off any NutriSense subscription, but you also get a free month of the dietitian support. And I love it because you kind of set how often you want them to check in with you. They'll, they'll check in and say, hey, I noticed you had kind of a glucose spike early in the day. Can you tell me about the meal? And they give great, easy takeaways on how you, you can change something. Yeah, this isn't just like a fat loss thing or it doesn't have to be about weight loss or anything like that. It's, it's really about getting to know your body, getting to know your health yeah. based on what you're putting in. And again, we're going to talk so much more into detail in this episode. So I'm so excited how this is going to correlate so well together. But when you use this tool, it really gives you that feedback, that understanding, that insight into your body. I just am so grateful that we've been able to use this a few times. It's not a lifelong thing, luckily for us, right, that we need it. But it's something that we've been fortunate enough to be able to use. And I would say if you can, if you have the opportunity to use something like this and just get to know your health, we don't know a lot of times when we're pre-diabetic, we don't know when we're running those glucose spikes. We don't know how that's correlating to our mood and our fatigue and our energy levels. We're so out of touch sometimes because we live such stressful, busy lives. So I just, I think this is an incredible tool. It's just all about the information that's going to then empower you for a lifetime. Like Jen said, we've used it for a couple months, but it has given us information that continues to empower us to make slightly different decisions when it comes to food. So go down to that link in the show notes, nutrisense.io backslash optimal body, and make sure you use code optimal body at checkout to get a discount and some free dietitian support. So our next guest is going to give us an incredible masterclass on the longevity organ, which is our skeletal muscle. Dr. Gabrielle Lyon is a Washington University fellowship-trained physician. She completed her undergraduate degree in human nutrition, vitamin, and mineral metabolism at the University of Illinois and continues to be mentored over the last two decades by one of the world-leading protein experts, Dr. Donald Lehman. Gabrielle's postdoctoral training was a combined research and clinical medicine fellowship in nutritional science, obesity medicine, and geriatrics. She is also board certified in family medicine. Dr. Lyon is the founder of the Institute for Muscle-Centric Medicine, 
where she services leaders, innovators, mavericks, and executives in their prospective fields. In addition, Gabrielle works closely with the Special Operations Military and has a private practice that services patients worldwide. Really, Dr. Lyon dives deep on the importance of protein, how our skeletal muscle is so important to our physical and physiological health in so many different ways. So let's dive in. Dr. Lyon, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Really excited to get into a conversation with you about staying strong (laughs) and really why it's so important to have high quality protein in the diet and maybe a conversation about metabolism. So many things that you are so skilled at talking to the public about. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, I can't wait to talk about staying strong and protein. Probably between that and my kids are the two most uh, often topics of conversation. So there you go. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like it. And I think, you know, with social media, which is an incredible tool for being able to educate so many people, but there's also a lot of information out there. And we hear a lot of these general terms kind of thrown out, eat more protein or something is good for your metabolism or whatever we may hear that can get a little convoluted and we don't really understand or typically a lot of people don't understand what these words are really meaning or how it's affecting our body, what it's really doing. So I would love to break things down a little bit. So what is like protein? Why do we need it for the body? What a great question. Protein is really a critical, essential nutrient. And what is an essential nutrient? It's really something that you must obtain from the diet. So our body cannot make it. For example, when we think about macronutrients, obviously you think about protein, carbohydrates, and fats. And carbohydrates, there's no essential need for carbohydrates. Our body can generate that. The essential need for fatty acids or fat is really, really small. But dietary protein is crucial and critical for nearly every operating system in the body. Everything from skin, hair, and bones, any kind of healthy pregnancy, as it relates to aging and skeletal muscle, you know, dietary protein is the focal point. And protein is made up of amino acids. And there are 20 amino acids, nine of which are essential. And again, that essential just that essential term means we must get it from our diet. And that's really how we define protein quality is in terms of the amount of essential amino acids, the ones that we must obtain from the diet. You know, that's great to kind of break that down and knowing that you know, we have these essential building blocks. And I know that there are different qualities of protein. And there are people who say you should get protein from certain sources because they're the most complete or they can help you get a lot more of these essential proteins. So, can you talk a little bit about what types of proteins people should be looking at prioritizing in their diet? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, this is, one of the reasons why I'm so happy to be able to come on your podcast to discuss it because, again, dietary protein as of late is really a hot topic. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've been studying nutrition for the last 20 years and I studied under someone named Dr. Donald Lehman, who is a academic uh, expert in protein metabolism. He really has made contributions that have changed the way that we think about dietary protein, especially as it relates to aging and muscle mass. And you know, over the last seven years, you there's a lot of controversy around protein, whether it's plant protein or animal protein, in a way that we've never actually seen it before. 
Um, yeah. Over the last two decades, it, it hasn't been as robust as it is now, especially as Jen, you were mentioning with social media, yeah. that with social media, there is this confluence of information and then there's an abundance of information which makes filtering out science very difficult. When we think about dietary protein, we really do think about the two kinds, the two major camps of which they come from, and that is the protein content in plants and then the protein content in animals. And the protein content in plants can be complete. There are complete sources of dietary protein, for example, say soy products, tempeh, those kinds of things. And um, the, or even say quinoa would be a complete protein mm -hmm. source. The key to understand is when we talk about protein quality, it's not really an emotional topic. Uh, rather, it's not an emotional topic at all. It is purely based on the essential amino acids. And in particular, when I think about essential amino acids, of course, there are nine, but as it relates to muscle and staying strong, as we mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, is leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And these are the branch chain amino acids. And a branch chain amino acid is simply the structure of the amino acid. And Leucine in particular plays a very unique role in stimulating muscle. And again, you know, now I'm talking about muscle. What does that have to do with protein? What does that have to do with protein quality? Well, when we think about dietary protein, we have to think about protein quality from its metabolic perspective. What is protein doing in the body? And these amino acids are so unique. They all have dual roles. They all have more than one role in the body. Yet when you look at the back of a food label, all you see is protein. You'll mm. see a protein, you'll see protein and then the number of protein. Mm -hmm. You know, this mm -hmm. is 10 grams of protein. Yeah. Well, that 10 grams of protein in say quinoa will have a different metabolic effect than say 10 grams of protein from beef or fish. And that makes a lot of sense because if you just think about the structure of the proteins, the amino acids, those building blocks are different. They come to us in different forms. So an animal-based protein or an animal-based protein has the same amino acid profile that is in an ideal ratio to stimulate other animals. So essentially what that means is protein from animals have the ideal ratio to maintain the health of, say, skeletal muscle in a mammal, right? Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. really am talking about humans. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas plants have the appropriate amino acid profile for, say, plants. Um, and how can we think about this as it translates to our own life? Well, can you get all the amino acids that you need from plants? Certain plants, yes. You'll just need to consume, say, 30% more. So if you are drinking, for example, hemp protein and the back of the label says that this hemp protein shake has 30 grams of protein, you may need to actually consume 45 grams of dietary protein from hemp to really get the amino acids that you need. Mm, that's so interesting. And I, and I think a great way to kind of visualize it in your head, thinking of you know, that direct kind of correlation, animal protein fueling a mammal versus plant protein fueling plants. So, you know, getting that idea of like, well, we are the animal, we are the, you know, have that skeletal yeah. muscle that we need to be fueling. So it does make sense. We need a little bit more if you're, if you're only going to plants. And I, and I appreciate how you said you can get that, you know, 
complete or enough of each of these amino acids by just eating more volume. Because I've heard the argument where people say, oh, well, look at a, a gorilla or a thoroughbred horse and how much muscle they have. I'm like, well, also look at how much they eat throughout the day. Right. <laughs> they are right. they're eating their body weight in vegetation every day, like every totally. so often. And we as humans don't take in that much food. <laughs> right. And Dom, you also bring up a really good point. Uh, why not just compare humans to humans Yeah. Um, versus humans to uh an animal right like this is the the comparison doesn't quite make sense yeah, so i think we're really talking about it in a non-emotional way and understanding that um the emotion aspect of it has say convoluted a bit of the science and where uh, protein quality becomes really really important is we must understand that there's a balance between you know for me i practice a kind of a medicine called muscle-centric medicine and it's really this concept that muscle is the organ of longevity and that these mm. diseases that we're seeing as it relates to aging and really metabolic dysfunction meaning um obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease. I believe that these diseases are strongly rooted in the health of skeletal muscle as the primary site of yeah. an insult prior to becoming obese, prior to developing insulin resistance or diabetes. Because, you know, skeletal muscle is the primary site for glucose disposal, for fatty acid oxidation. So essentially, the way in which you metabolize food is really related to um, the organ of longevity, which is skeletal muscle. And that's why dietary protein is so important because dietary protein, again, is an essential nutrient that feeds skeletal muscle. And that's where we really have to understand that, you know, as women and men age, we've all seen sarcopenia. You guys are physical therapists. Mm -hmm. you, you've seen the effects of aging and you've mm -hmm. seen the changes in skeletal muscle mass. You've seen, and we can all relate to this. This is what sarcopenia is, you know, and, and sarcopenia is often thought of this disease of aging, but really with 75% of the population not getting the exercise that is required, uh, we're seeing these changes in muscle much earlier. And that's where understanding the balance of dietary protein becomes so crucial because you know, there's two primary ways to stimulate muscle, and that is dietary protein, again, with high quality protein. And I'll give some specific recommendations of what that looks like to actually stimulate muscle and muscle protein synthesis, you know, and that balance shifts. The other way to stimulate skeletal muscle is through resistance training mm -hmm. and exercise. And as we age, you know, when we're younger, we're very, uh, anabolic. We're driven by these hormones that tend to taper off as we age. And so the balance of stimulating that muscle from dietary means becomes much more critical. And, uh, and that's something very important to understand that if you eat the way you did when you were in your 20s, that that's probably not going to take you through, say, postpartum or perimenopause or postmenopause. We really have to adjust those ratios. And that's what I wanted to really dive into as well is like, how is it changing, especially as women going through so many, so many hormonal changes, typically through life, how, like, what is the recommendation for how much protein we should be getting as we're kind of going from postpartum into the, into menopause? Yeah. Well, let's start by talking about the current protein recommendations. Yeah. And the current protein recommendations are known as the RDA, which is the recommended dietary allowance. And that is hasn't changed for the last 30 years. And that is mm -hmm. set at 0.8 grams per kilogram. 
So 0.8 grams per kilogram. And that's really been the primary starting point for everybody. And oftentimes people think of that as a maximum rather than a minimum. So 0.8 grams per kilogram is the minimum to prevent deficiencies. And just to give you perspective, the average female eats about 65 grams of protein a day and the average male eats about 100 grams of protein a day. Hmm. And that's that's and you guys are very fit individuals and and I'm sure you're thinking well that that's probably not enough and again is it enough to prevent deficiencies yes is it enough to promote optimization and optimal aging that answer would be no mm-hmm. so um you know these recommendations for aging have changed but have yet to be picked up by the RDA as we know, science takes a really long time. I think yeah. the center of the earth cools faster. <laughs> but there are expert groups like the, it's the ESPN expert group, and they recommend at least one to 1.2 grams per kg for a healthy older person. And again, you asked, well, what, it, you know, what does it look like for um, perimenopause, menopause? But, you know, I think that we can think of individuals not necessarily in the aging population, but if we think about it at the extremes, it helps us come up with the answer that may be beneficial. So hopefully I'm explaining this well enough in that the the studies recommend that it should be at least, again, for a healthy older person, one to 1.2 grams per kilogram for a healthy, quote, older person, that's probably enough. Um, I think that we're looking for, you know, then there's other recommendations like the ProAge study group, and they'll recommend 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kg Mm -hmm. um, for anyone who is kind of undergoing some acute or chronic diseases. But again, what's so interesting is none of these recommendations take into account what would be optimal. And I think that when we think about optimal, we're really looking at closer to 1.6 grams per kg up to one gram per pound ideal body weight. Mm. And that would be my recommendation as individuals get more mature in age. And and maturity could be anything above 40, right? So one gram per pound ideal body weight. I think that you can back that up by science. I think that it's safe and it's doable. So for example, if your ideal body weight, Jen, is 120 pounds, then your protein recommendation would be 120 grams of protein. Mm-hmm. And and that is going to then stay consistent, you know, as I age. As you age. Yeah. yeah. And here's why. And now the next thing would be, okay, so now we're talking about the protein hierarchy. So how much protein would be ideal for optimization? And again, I, I think that a great target number to shoot for is one gram per pound ideal body weight. You're not going to go wrong. Could you go higher than that? Absolutely. Could you go lower than that? Absolutely. How do you determine if you could go higher and lower? The more sedentary you are, likely the higher your protein need is going to be. And the reason that is, is because you have to balance it against inactivity. The more active you are, the more you can get away with actually having less protein because you're stimulating your muscle in another way. Now, the next thing that we have to think about is how are we going to distribute protein? Is it one meal a day? Is it two meals a day? Is it, you know, three or four meals a day? We hear all kinds of uh, ways in which one can eat, you know, strategies for eating. And the evidence suggests that as we get older, our muscle tissue becomes what we call more anabolically resistant. 
And that simply means that the efficiency or the capacity of that muscle tissue goes down as we age, unfortunately. And listen, this is the the totality of evidence, but that's not taking into account a lifelong elite athlete. Perhaps their muscle tissue maintains uh, a very youthful nature, but for the majority of us, we're not training a couple hours a day or, you know, we don't fall into that elite level athlete category. So a practical takeaway for the listener would be understanding that it's the distribution of protein, simply meaning how much protein they're getting per meal to stimulate muscle. And that that would be around 30 grams of dietary protein, of high quality dietary protein to get that leucine uh, content of the meal up. Mm-hmm. So 30 grams of protein will equal two and a half grams of leucine, that essential amino acid, which will stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Mm. I think that's great. And honestly, like something you said was contrary to what I would have been thinking Mm -hmm. um, in the more active I am, the less protein that I might need because I'm stimulating my muscles in a different way. I would have thought, hey, the more I'm training or the more strength training, I would be doing the more protein I might need in order to help with the remodeling then, you know, of the the muscles moving forward. And I also appreciate how you bring up stuff about how, okay, sarcopenia, you know, that's that's kind of something that has come into this common thread of, oh, it's this muscle wasting that we can't avoid as we age. You know, whatever they say, 1% of yeah. our, you know, skeletal muscle per year after age, whatever. But again, right, I think right. that comes a lot more so from averages that we see, which averages, you know, in behavior, we also see people get less and less active as they age and do totally. less and less strength training in the gym. So, We all know that example of the person who starts, you know, strength training in their 50s or late 50s and they bulk up and they gain muscle mass. So, is is that a process that you think we can start to kind of reverse in our thinking like, oh, I'm just going to lose muscle mass as I age? Can people actually start to put that on? And what type of training do you recommend people start doing in order to do that? Yeah, Dom, that's a really, really great point. So a muscle-centric concept is really one of empowerment. You ap- There's no limit to when you can improve. You're absolutely yeah. correct. And quite frankly, I think the loss of, you know, the, the percent loss of muscle mass is totally skewed. Mm. And yeah. this is just my personal perspective. I think that it really depends on what your activity level is. And quite frankly, you know, working with patients, we do DEXAs and we measure muscle mass. I mean, obviously, a DEXA doesn't measure muscle mass directly, but we look at these markers. And if someone is inactive for a period of time, they lose more than 1%, right? Mm. So these, again, what you see, these averages are uh, just that. And, you know, I don't actually, quite frankly, know what to make of some of those numbers, because I I think that they're, they're deeply skewed to perhaps sicker populations. Um, One of the other things is before I um, get, you know, off track, and uh, I I promise to come back to what an aging person should do. And we say aging, like, what is 50? That's, that's not really aging. But um, (laughs) So every 50-year-old listening, you are not in the aging category. Do not worry. But what is so critical about muscle is that when we lose, so muscle is the metabolic driver. And it's really the only metabolic driver we can control. You can't actually think about contracting your liver because the liver doesn't contract, right? Or doesn't contract voluntarily. Uh, You can't think about um, these other organ systems. You can't think your way into producing more thyroid hormone. But 
skeletal muscle is under your voluntary control. And as we lose skeletal muscle, the metabolic consequences are uh, just shocking, right? Mm -hmm. So we begin to lose muscle and that loss in muscle, not necessarily just by aging, but truly the way in which we change our behaviors. And maybe a portion of that is mind frame that then feeds into uh, the way in which we live our life. We have changes in our blood sugar regulation. We have changes in our um, fatty acid oxidation, our triglycerides, cholesterol markers. So the the input of skeletal muscle in our overall health becomes much more apparent when we lose it. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's really important to highlight is, is this concept that muscle is often thought about looking good and for athletic performance, but it truly is this metabolic driver and it is an organ system. And this skeletal muscle, when we contract it, it secretes myokines and myokines interface with the immune system. These are proteins released from skeletal muscle, just like thyroid, thyroid hormone is released from the thyroid. And that is really another avenue in which skeletal muscle is so critical. Um, So I just wanted to digress a little bit to paint the picture and really move the perspective from um, muscle as just this mobility strength organ to its critical role in metabolism. You know, when we think about as we, quote, gain weight as we get older, is it really that we're gaining weight or is that that we're destroying skeletal muscle and the destruction of skeletal muscle leads to these subsequent consequences. So that's a little bit of a rabbit hole. And I'm going to circle back. What can somebody do? (laughs) Uh, What can somebody do? Somebody who is in their 50s can really understand that hard resistance training is critical. And I I just want to lay at your feet the current recommendations. The current recommendations by the CDC is 150 minutes of moderate exercise, you know, can be 75 minutes if it's vigorous. And then which is nothing, by the way. And then two days a week, two days a week of full body resistance training, at least two days a week. 75% of people are not meeting that requirement. Yeah. yeah. So the first thing someone can do, and I'm sure you guys talk about exercise and training all the time, is to really put in the hard work. It's not about being on your phone when you're exercising. It is about going to failure, whether you are lifting heavy or lifting light. It's putting in that um, effort. And that effort should be done at least two days a week, probably closer to three to four days a week. And and really, obviously, working with a healthcare professional to um, understand what an individual's training program looks like. So that yeah. that is one thing that is non-negotiable in my mind. And, you know, if you look at the studies, could you do um, lighter weight? To failure, absolutely. And Stu Phillips has looked at that. Um, So I think that that's really important to point out. People don't have to go and do a max bench or a max squat to gain benefit. And then the other thing is having some kind of, you know, people may cringe, but I'll, I'll say high intensity interval training as a baseline. And then I'll say something like throwing in a weekly or every other week sprint interval training where you're really pushing your capacity. Mm. I, I love this, but I think what's hard, especially as I want to say women in particular, from what I've seen as we age, it's, you know, it's the fear of getting hurt. It's the fear of my knees are bad. My shoulders are bad. I can't, I can't lift this much weight. I can't go to failure. I can't do high intensity workouts. You know, oh. it's, it's this fear of doing all of that. 
And what has been conditioned, especially as we age, is that we need more cardiovascular health. So I need to do more cardio and that's going to help with my metabolism. Can you kind of break down why, you know, more cardio isn't actually the answer, especially as we age? I mean, I know you talked about resistance yeah. training, but just to tap in on that a little bit more. Yeah, totally. Well, cardiovascular activity is important. And it does help with mitochondrial health. And it again, it is an important aspect of health. But resistance training is so crucial. Stimulating that skeletal muscle in a way that builds strength is a non-negotiable. And when you're thinking about aging, we really have to think about what are the things that we need to protect? And, and we know muscle has a propensity to decrease yeah, it just does. And and there's, and you know, part of this is hormones. And, and listen, could we stay jacked and tan our entire life? Probably to some degree, yes. However, at some point, and maybe it's 80 or 80, who knows when that number is, the the muscle fibers change, they do change and really focusing on strength, and understanding that resistance exercise, it shouldn't be either or. Mm. But uh, it has to be both. And if I were to prioritize one, you know, if I had to pick, I would prioritize resistance training. And here's why. If you, what are the things that are going to happen as you age? You know, Jen, you mentioned, well, I'm afraid that I'm going to hurt myself, not you personally, but your, yeah. your client or, or people that you've heard. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt myself or, um, you know, I can't do some kind of explosive movement. By the way, getting out of a chair for some people is explosive, hmm. right? Yeah. You have to plan for an inevitable failure. I know that sounds morbid, but the reality is, is it true? Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Um, if you do not plan for when things go wrong, you can't plan for how things go right. Mm. I like that. I really love that you brought that, that up, that explosivity can mean getting out of a chair or getting off of a toilet. And as physical therapists who have worked in hospitals with people who are getting you know, in that place where participatory functional strength is really becoming the issue, getting off the toilet becomes the most important thing for people. And that that can be explosive. And that's where, you know, I, I don't like, like you've alluded to using the word aging as much to, you know, maybe transitioning to using the word like when we start to lose that functional participatory strength that we've been so used to our entire life, that's when that muscle conversation really starts to become important when it's a matter of being able to walk at a certain speed, being able to get up off of a low chair, being able to get up off of the ground. These are all the physical biomarkers that people start to lose when their mortality rate risk really starts to skyrocket. And I love how right. you're attaching things that we talk about here with, hey, these are some of the physical biomarkers that people start to see decline when our mortality risk starts going up you're also attaching it into all the other physiologic health benefits as far as you know the muscle organ as you know being so important to our metabolism our immunity and everything else that was just kind of a thought i had right there yeah i love it and you know the reality is, is i hate talking about this idea that that eventually we may get to the point where we're worried about getting up off the toilet mm -hmm. that sucks Mm -hmm. But yeah. if we don't plan for that, then, you know, if you don't plan for the obvious, right, then you, you succumb to everything. Yeah. And that's where, you know, so is cardiovascular activity going to make you stronger? Is it going to make you have the capacity to be able to um, 
carry your groceries or if you, God forbid, you fall, get up or yeah. catch yourself from tripping. Any of these things, these are explosive movements, mm-hmm. you know, getting, you know, and, and I think that we really have to change the conversation from cardiovascular activity while important for mitochondrial health to becoming strong. And we live in a society where sedentary behavior is easy, but being sedentary is a disease state. Mm. There's no such thing as a healthy sedentary person. Mm. And we must really take massive action to fight against the comforts of the life that we have. So how do we know how much you know, muscle mass we should be putting on. I I mean, you look on social media and you can say, am I supposed to look like this person (laughs) then? Like, how do we know within our own body? How are we kind of measuring it? Is it just based on how often I'm doing it? How much I feel the the progress is is happening? Like, how do I know when I'm getting to a point where I'm putting on the muscle that is necessary for all these metabolic changes that are going to be beneficial within my health? What a great question. I don't have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And the reality is everyone only has a guess. Yeah. yeah. Part of the reason is, is because we always measure body fat percentage. We yeah. don't even have a great way of routinely measuring skeletal muscle mass. For example, if you go to your doctor's office, your doctor doesn't go, you know what, um, Jen, you have 60 pounds of skeletal muscle mass. Yeah. So the reality is, is again, this is a failed paradigm. And, and a paradigm is simply a construct of ideas, uh, a way in which we function, you know, uh, within theories and, and, you know, the way in which we look at a system operationally. And we've always talked about obesity and being over fat. But mm-hmm. we've completely, completely neglected skeletal muscle as this organ of longevity. And so, that's a great question. Uh, the best that we can do, and again, to just to lay this out for the listener, is that you go and you even get a DEXA. A DEXA doesn't directly measure skeletal muscle mass. Hmm. A DEXA, which is, quote, one of the gold standards in measuring body composition, looks at body fat. Yeah. And then everything else, it's body fat and then lean mass, and then it's extrapolated. So, um, you know, the way in which we're really looking at, at muscle mass is MRI or CT. Nobody's hmm. doing that. Right. That is that cannot be the standard of care. But that's that's kind of what the standard of care or not the standard of care, but that's uh, somewhat of a gold standard. Yeah. And uh, we don't have access to that. And the average person doesn't have access to that. But from an academic standpoint, looking at an appendicular skeletal muscle mass index, uh, which people are going to be like, well, well, what's that? You can Google it and then you can measure, you know, appendicular skeletal mass divided by height squared. You know, it's like all these these things. But you know, the average person isn't going to look at that. So you can safely say you probably don't have enough muscle. And even if you do, keep trying, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I know that that's a nebulous answer and that answer might suck for some people. But uh, it just, again, it goes to show that we have somewhat of a failed perspective when it comes to prevention. We know yeah. very clearly what body fat percentage, you know, could be detrimental. People look at BMI, which... You know, we all know the issues with that, but we don't know what an optimal skeletal muscle mass would be for anybody. Although there are some advances, there's a creatine D3 test, you know, it's a urinary creatine test that is starting to be used. It's being used in research. It has not translated over to clinical care yet, but mm-hmm. uh, these are some somewhat of, there's this, it's promising, basically. 
That's great. Yeah, and I, I'm glad that you bring that up. And the more that I think I'm learning just about health in general and from all the people that we interview is it's it's the non-sexy, sucky answers <laughs> that generally get us on a path to making those behavior changes and doing the long-term hard work that it takes to start feeling the difference, to feeling a certain way so that we don't care about those sexy, simple answers anymore. We feel it, right? right. And when you start doing yeah. a thing a certain way in life to the point where you feel the health benefits, you feel about how much easier it is to walk up and down stairs and, oh my gosh, I'm not feeling that knee pain anymore. Or, right. oh my gosh, I'm not getting as hungry as often anymore. Like you start right. feeling these changes where you don't need the super complicated or sexy sounding physiologic tests to tell you that you're getting healthier. Um, you, you just, you, you're feeling it. And um, one thing that I kind of wanted to bring up too is when, when we talk about this whole cardio, oh, I need to do more cardio. I'm wondering if you have any, you know, studies or comparisons because if you go into your gym and do 45 minutes or whatever of strength training with sets to failure, you're getting a cardio workout. <laughs> you are taxing your cardiovascular system. And, and I mean, you bring up HIT or high intensity training, which I think most people would put in a category of cardio, but I know there's a lot of research studies that show the drastic like benefits of HIT training a certain amount of time compared to doing that same amount of time of steady state cardio training. Yeah, I think that, um, well, what we do know is you're exactly right. Uh, high intensity interval training can be used or even fast resistance training, right, has a cardiovascular aspect. I, I think one important thing to think about is what is that there's many different ways to get a stimulus mm -hmm. for an outcome. Yeah. And when I think about cardiovascular activity that is long, slow and steady, is it enough stimulus to generate a significant outcome? Mm -hmm. You know, whereas you can go in and do some kind of high intensity interval training and really improve insulin sensitivity in yeah. a much shorter period of time without some of the chronic overuse injuries. Mm. I know we've talked about it a little bit, but just to help the listeners kind of break it down in their minds a little bit, fatty acid metabolism. Yeah. What, is, what does that really mean? Because you, yeah. you've talked about how, you know, your muscle really helps with this. What what is it helping with? What does that really mean? Yeah. Let, let's let's take a step back and talk about skeletal muscle as it relates to what it does in the body. Mm -hmm. And skeletal muscle, if you think about skeletal muscle as this focal point in health, there's a couple things that we think about. Um, healthy skeletal muscle is the primary site. 80 to 90% of glucose oxidation. And that just means the utilization and disposal of glucose, carbohydrates. So carbohydrates and glucose, it's toxic to the body and the body needs it, but it, it can't stay and hang around in the bloodstream, right? The definition of diabetes is blood you know, a fasting blood glucose above 120, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now you have elevated blood sugar. The primary site for glucose disposal is in skeletal muscle. So mm -hmm. the more healthy skeletal muscle mass you have, the better your ability and place to, to dispose of glucose, mm. which is one of the reasons as people age, we begin to see changes in blood glucose and then subsequent changes in insulin, 
right? We see yeah. higher levels of insulin. Uh, we see higher levels of blood glucose. I believe that one of the primary sites for this is skeletal muscle. Mm. So understanding that healthy skeletal muscle is the primary site for glucose disposal is is critical. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one one aspect. And then fatty acid oxidation is, you know, when you think about fat, a place in which you have fatty acid oxidation is obviously um, within skeletal muscle and within the mitochondria, fatty acid oxidation or beta oxidation you know, one of the biggest places for this is skeletal muscle. So oftentimes when we think about high levels of cholesterol and, you know, cholesterol is very complex and it's, there's a dietary component and a genetic component, um, but also triglycerides as it relates to thinking about overall metabolic health, you know, metabolic health begins in skeletal muscle. And so your ability to manage and mitigate excess amounts of these substrates that begins in skeletal muscle. Yeah. No, I think that's fantastic. And I think it just continues to kind of hammer away the point that the skeletal muscle that we have are energy movers, (laughs) right? And whether that energy is coming from the glucose in the bloodstream, which our muscles very readily, you know, use and activate, or, you know, these fatty acid chains that maybe breaking down, like our muscles can move a lot of energy and we need to therefore use and load those muscles and make sure that they are continuing to improve in their overall health. I know that I I think I've seen on your, on your page on Instagram, which by the way, everyone should go give Dr. Gabrielle Lyon a follow because she (laughs) breaks down all of this stuff on her Instagram feed in such easy to digest little tidbits. But you talk a little bit about how skeletal muscle can help with inflammation. And by what, you know, exact process does this happen? And I know there is a necessary level of inflammation in our body, but how does skeletal muscle, you know, help with excessive inflammation? There's a a couple ways in which I think about uh, skeletal muscle as it relates to inflammation. And I'll tell you, so number one, skeletal muscle as it relates to inflammation, I think it's really important for controlling body fat and body composition. Mm. We know Mm. that obesity creates low-grade inflammation in the body. And this, again, I believe that skeletal muscle is a primary site or a primary site for metabolism and ultimately dysregulation of substrates. So healthy skeletal muscle leads to healthy body composition and that that's critical right uh obesity is a problem being overweight is a problem this generates a low-grade inflammatory state in the body so that's one way the other way is skeletal muscle contracting skeletal muscle when we think about skeletal muscle as an organ system releases these myokines and myokines are proteins and one of these myokines probably the most famous is interleukin-6 Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've all heard about cytokine storm and uh, how macrophages release interleukin-10 and TNF-alpha. Mm-hmm. Skeletal muscle plays a role in balancing the inflammatory effects from macrophages and from the immune system. So it can balance the way in which our body responds to inflammation. Mm-hmm. And that's really critical to shifting our perspective of the importance of skeletal muscle. 
I mean, this whole conversation is so incredibly important. I hope that people are really taking it in to start to understand, okay, why is this so important for my health? Where can I see that I'm maybe not getting enough protein in or not really prioritizing that? And where am I not prioritizing resistance training? And how can that, how can I just start to add these little things into my life? I think, you know, change always comes in increments and we don't have to do everything at once, but at least starting to take note of how much protein am I taking in at each meal? And am I really prioritizing these essential proteins? I think it just becomes so important and it doesn't have to feel so daunting. <laughs> and I hope yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. And and you know, it's it is it's not it shouldn't be daunting and it shouldn't be overwhelming. These are very simple changes to make. So the for the listener, really practical application. Your first meal and your last meal of the day really need to be stacked in protein. And from a gram amount, that should be 30 to 50 grams of protein. And you guys can go online, calculate what that looks like, but 30 to 50 grams of protein. If you eat animal-based proteins and you're comfortable with that, then you can have a lower amount potentially. If you eat more plant-based proteins, then consider a higher on the higher end to make sure that you make up for all those amino acids. But when you are coming out of an overnight fast, that your muscle is primed to respond. So that first meal of the day is critical. It sets you up for metabolic regulation. You turn on the machinery for muscle protein synthesis. You have a diet or a meal that is high in protein. It kicks off these satiation mechanisms. So you have control of your hunger, increases thermogenesis, the energy that you're going to burn because stimulating muscle protein in and of itself actually is a metabolically expensive process. So that's important. And then, you know, once that machinery is turned on, you can have a, a, a smaller meal in the middle of the day, maybe 20 to 30 grams of, of dietary protein with a one-to-one -one ratio of carbohydrates. And that your last meal of the day should be another robust amount of dietary protein because now you're moving into an overnight fast. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a super duper easy way to think about it. And then thinking about what are you going to do to change up your habits? Well, it, you're, you're going to commit to resistance training, even if you don't want to. If mm -hmm. you want to start slow and you want to do bands or body weight, fine. I would also say you're never going to be ready to feel uncomfortable. So you might as well just jump right in and <laughs> you know, go to the gym, get with a trainer, don't make excuses. It's never going to get easier. You just have to execute. And doing some kind of resistance training program three to four days a week under the watchful eye of a fitness professional until you feel proficient. Uh, I think that that's critical. And understanding one other thing that we didn't mention is the flux. So when you're training, you know, if you are sedentary, eventually your muscle ends up looking like a marbled steak, right? And you do mm -hmm. need to have a flux. So you, you want to get rid of muscle glycogen, you want to mobilize those fatty acids, you don't want things to build up within that skeletal muscle, you do want to have a flux of nutrients and substrate. So keeping muscle healthy is, you know, through exercise, that's, that's a, the way to do it. Mm -hmm. And then throwing in one session of some kind of high intensity, or if you're feeling froggy, you know, a sprint interval training session doesn't have to be every week, but eventually working yourself up to being comfortable doing these uncomfortable things. And, you know, people will say, well, you know, I don't have time for exercise. Well, trust me, you don't have time for illness. So yeah. you better make time yeah. for exercise. So uh, and, true. And right. 
you know? Oh, gosh. It's just a a quick recap on some of the things that we talked about. No, I think that's the perfect recap and just some perfect little takeaways on how people can start to implement these things in the lifeline and the, the longevity of the health conversation and just making sure that we are trying to develop these healthy behaviors. It can seem daunting. So I appreciate those those few takeaways at the very end. Yeah. And even that last little tag, I mean, when I did a lot of work in the hospital, you know, sickness and illness can be one of the greatest motivators. So start getting yourself going now so you don't get to that point. So yeah. you can so you can start to get on the path to health before you start to have a pain or a sickness or an illness come up that starts to to motivate you a little bit more. Dr. Lyon, thanks so much for spending time with us today. I know that you have a book right now, Forever Strong, that is on pre-order yeah. that I'm sure goes through all of this even more. Where can people go to get that? They can go to my website, uh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and they can find out where they can pre-order it and all the amazing stuff that we have for them. Uh, I've got all the information on my website, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Amazing. Well, you're really, you're, you're the living example of <laughs> the work that you're talking about as well, knowing that you have two little kids, you know, that's when people talk about it's the hardest and it's the most difficult to get back time. into your, yeah, you don't have time or whatever it may be. And, and you are the walking living example <laughs> of, of being in your body, understanding, using these principles and building that muscle to maintain your health. So I just, I appreciate the message, the work, the research that you're doing to continue to help others. And I know that this book's going to be super impactful. So I just appreciate all of that. Wow. She is just a wealth of knowledge. I hope you learned a lot and please pass this episode along to anyone who you know could benefit from understanding the science behind muscle, behind protein, behind metabolism, what these all really mean and how they support our health. It just helps so that more people get this education on how to truly optimize their bodies and their health. So if you haven't yet, we just ask you if you can also leave a little rating and review. <laughs> it helps so, so many more people can hear this podcast, learn about their bodies and feel empowered to make some changes. Of course, we'll have her book linked up below so that you can pre-order and continue to learn even more.